Welcome to episode four of the slide area. I'm your host, Ed Pedersen. This episode, we feature David Tronzo. David is a very eclectic slide master who is currently a professor at the Berkeley School of Music in Boston, Mass. But before that, he played with everybody from John Hyatt to Paul Simon and all points in between. He prefers to uh, be listed as a free jazz, free improviser in the experimental free improv scene. And I highly recommend you check out his many YouTube videos, his recordings, which I was fortunate enough to dip into after talking with him. And he has a guitar masterclass, a slide guitar slash prepared guitar masterclass on mymasterclass.com, which I quickly purchased myself and watched several times. I uh, highly recommend it. It's money well spent. And I can tell you that uh, David and I bonded probably more so than Anybody else I've talked to about slide guitar because we're both going for the same things. I didn't realize there was another person out there who was combining slide guitar and jazz and free improv until Sonny Landreth put us together, and I'm glad he did. It's um, immediately impacted my life and playing um, to the point where when I was uh, playing a, a, a workshop here in London, Someone came up to me and said, do you know David Tronzo? You, you play a lot like David Tronzo. And of course, that's not true, but I took it as a tremendous compliment because um, I, I, can't, I can't come up with someone who I have more respect for than David. And um, this episode, I will ask fewer questions and let David do most of the talking because you're going to learn so much and get so much out of it. So sit back and dig David Tronzo. When I was a kid, before I started to play guitar, I heard what was to be, you know, what was to become known to me as bottleneck guitar, you know, on records, but I didn't know what it was. I was 13 years old. It was uh, 1970. And um, at that point, I was listening and was deeply in love with you know, not only all the rock and roll and the Grateful Dead and the you know, Led Zeppelin and this and that, you know, Allman Brothers and all that stuff, but I was really deeply in love with a lot of very modern jazz, stuff from 1960 forward, as well as some stuff that would preceded that, you know, bebop era and this and that. And the range of people, you know, it runs across everything. Art Ensemble of Chicago, Ellington, Ornette Coleman, this and that and a whole big bunch of classical music. And this was all being played by my middle brother. He listened to music. He had such eclectic taste, it was ridiculous. And so you'd listen to a Dave Van Ronk record, and then you'd listen to Stravinsky, and then you'd listen to Ornette Coleman, and then you'd listen to Grateful Dead, American Beauty, you know, and you'd go on and on and on. So this stuff for me was just like normal. And I thought to myself at 13, how come the slide guitar is not in the jazz stuff and the classical stuff, it's nowhere to be seen, but it's in all this other stuff. And I realized that there was a vacuum there and I made a decision, this is the literal truth, to become the person who figured out 
how to solve that problem. And that, in a nutshell, is what has driven me uh, completely. So I started to teach myself because there was nobody to study with. And I immediately started to develop a vocabulary that allowed me to <clears throat> play jazz music of different kinds. The first tunes I learned were Mingus tunes and Charlie Parker tunes. I learned uh, Reincarnation of a Lovebird and Donna Lee. And I worked like 15 hours a day for 20 or 21 years before I took a look at it even, chipping away at this problem of how to build vocabulary that wasn't based solely in folkloric blues music that's typical of slide guitar. Uh-huh. And I'm one of the other guys, aside from Sonny, who developed the finger behind the slide technique. And when I do that, I play counterpoint lines. I play two lines at once when I improvise. And I could play all the jazz voicings, all the modern hybrid stuff that's in the classical music. And I became this really strong improviser. And when I moved to New York in 79, by the time I popped above ground in like 1984, I was working in the jazz scene and the experimental improvised music scene, which had a thriving audience outside the U.S., and when I mean thriving, I mean, if I played in New York to an audience of 20 people, if I flew over to Europe, I played in front of 8,000 people. Yeah. Yep. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. It was like that. It was that yeah. different. And so just logistically, it made more sense to me to, to chase that audience around because I wanted to play that music. You know, so I was in Canada or Europe, wherever. Meanwhile, during those years, of course, I'm becoming a good musician. I'm becoming actually a very good musician. Um, well, that's actually bullshit. I became a great musician and I became a very highly skilled musician. And I ended up getting asked to do studio work. And once that started, that's how I encountered people like Marshall Crenshaw, who was the guy who pushed me towards the Hyatt gig or rather pushed Hyatt towards me. Cause I didn't know who John Hyatt was. I didn't listen to that music. I never owned a Beatles record. I could have cared less. Right. I love that stuff now. But then I was just like, yeah, yeah, whatever. You know? Um, and it wasn't out of bias. It was just interest. I just went, I had only so much time a day and I didn't have big political ideas about music. I just kind of went after what I liked. I, I've had an aha moment uh, a couple of times while you were talking and one of which is now I fully understand why Sonny put us together. Um, because I'm the, the way that this, and not to, I want you to go back to what you're saying in a second, but just so you are, now I understand because the reason this book came together was after, you know, my whole life I've wanted to become a good slide player, but I was a singer-songwriter, and then I was a producer, and, you know, it just, it got put on the back burner, but a few years ago I said, okay, man, you know, I'm, I'm 51, this is going to happen, and saw every video I could get my hands on, starting with Brosman's and going the whole gamut, I've seen both of Sonny's, but what I mentioned to Sonny was, I said, well, you know, I said, Sonny, I'm not really interested in playing the blues. 
I said, I, wa- I want to play jazz with slide guitar. And right. so now I know why he put us together. That's right. Okay. That's correct. So, there you go. Good. Please, okay. Please continue. Great. <laughs> great. Well, that's great. By the way, I think you've chosen to do a very honorable and wonderful thing with the slide because I think there's a, I think it's a great thing. So yeah, so the, so now it's the 90s and I, I went back to doing what I was doing, which was building my own groups and my documenting my music. It was really hard. Re- getting record records out was, was, I've never had a good experience with the record industry. And so at best, I got these little micro deals for like a one-off of this or that. Uh, in point of fact, I've released over 50 albums. Um, but they're all, you know, a huge amount of them are deleted now. I mean, I'm going to send you a bunch of things, but uh, they're available online and this and that, and you're just going to be able to listen and watch or whatever. But um, it was sufficient enough for me to engage in enough activity that basically I became known in the music industry as a guy who could go anywhere and play with anybody. So my clients included Paul Simon and David Byrne and John Cale, and they included Mike Minieri, the leader of Steps Ahead, and Michael Brecker, and and then it included like, you know, the downtown New York avant scene with Zorn and all those people, and it included film work, and it was just hugely diverse, and I played African music of different kinds, and, you know, um, North African and Arabic musics and these hybrid things and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and then in the early 2000s, uh, the business was starting to collapse. The touring business was going through another one of its sort of temporary, you know, collapses. It all falls apart pretty regularly. And um, right at a point when I was really kind of struggling again for work, for paying work, uh, I was uh, called by my friend Tony Shear. He's a bass player and a guitarist who plays with Bill Frizzell for many years now, and among others. And uh, he said, hey, call these guys at Berkeley. They would really like to talk to you. So I gave them a call. And they arranged for me to come down and uh, teach a master class to 500 kids in the Berkeley Performance Center Whoa. during this program that they have for high school kids in the summer. And... Um, and I did it, you know, and I had been doing that kind of thing over the many years, like teaching residencies and small, smaller stuff. I always taught, you know, one-on-one, but I really loved it. I have a real deep commitment to that also. So I went down and I taught there and it was an audition. I didn't know it was an audition. So as soon as I was finished, the chair of the department that I'm now in said to me, hey, let's go get a cup of coffee. And he offered me a job. But they didn't just offer me a job. I have no degrees. Um, I work, I learned to play on the bandstand. I learned to play um, with very little study outside by just figuring it out and going on gigs. And so they said to me, they said, we're going to waive every prototype requirement and all of the rules write a couple of courses and we're going to give you a room and we're going to just send people your way and just do what you do and let's see what happens. And within like uh, about three or four semesters, 
I became the third most in-demand faculty in the guitar department to study with out of 70 people, Whoa. 70 faculty. And I've established myself there in a way that now I'm a full professor. I work across three departments and um, this has formed like this. I have a huge kind of opportunity right now in the academic field that's now bridging into the classical world and all this stuff. And um, I still am working on the same mission, the same project mission, which is to continue to expand and develop this stuff and to play with more and more diverse, you know, situations as they arise. I'm not really going to ever go back to thrusting myself in at the mercy of the music industry. I'm, I'm pretty much not doing that. I still tour when it's when it's well arranged and I record with people when it's well arranged, but I don't, I don't run high and low to try to uh, be part of that, right. that spring. And needless to say, I don't have to. So I'm at that stage of my life now where I'm going to write a couple of books, you know, and do, <laughs> do that kind of thing, you know, um, this and that. And uh, apparently I'm, Apparently, for a long time, anyways, I was the first of the first of anyone to develop enough vocabulary to literally not only bring the slide guitar into jazz and classical music, but to bring it into the modern uh, end of that, which is huge range of stuff you have to be able to do, you know, yeah. to be able to do that. I mean, it's 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 enormous. It's relatively easy to play standards or bebop tunes once you get some facility to handle like the level of improvisation that's been in the music the level of composition that people are writing uh, nowadays and for the last 30 years is really kind of daunting task and we see as we teach it it's it's overwhelming to most kids because there's no way to accomplish the study of it in under 10 to 20 years right that, that's how much data is out there. You cannot possibly eat that ground up any faster. That, um, that's the that's the wall I ran into. Um, sure. If you wanted to go beyond blues, so so yep. let let's talk technically about a couple things, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. Okay. Absolutely. So. Okay, so since you're playing this this wide range of music and going into jazz, and this is one of the things I, I talked to Sonny about, you know, I, I, I did this record with Giuseppe Logan a few years ago when we, uh -huh. found, when, yeah. we, when we found him and tried to resurrect his career. And, you know, uh, Cooper Moore, you know, Gene Ashton, um, the, he's a jazz keyboardist. Right. right. Yeah. So, so I, I know Gene and I said, hey, man, I want you to play piano on this and so, so we were having a little trouble communicating with Giuseppe because um, uh, he wanted to play standards because he was playing in the park for change, and that's what people gave him money for. Right. So, so, so yep, Gene, there you go. So, yeah, so Gene said, and, and you know, me and Gene and Larry Rowland was playing bass. You know, the three of us are from an you know an improvisational background. We're not interested mm -hmm. in playing standards. So anyway, long story short, Gene says, "Well, let's let's just play a blues, right?" Well, here's the problem, man. When you're when you're playing in uh, an open tuning slide guitar. 
and it's a jazz blues, not a blues blues, right? So there's like, you know, 40 chords, not three. <laughs> you know, right. that's right. <laughs> so, so Sonny was laughing because, you know, I was sitting there terrified out of my mind because I'm like, whoa, okay. So Gene is throwing in all these like, you know, passing chords and inversions and, and voicings and 11, 9, 13. And I'm like, oh dear God, how am I going to do this in an open tuning? So how do you <laughs> how, <laughs> yeah, laugh now? <laughs> <laughs> I do. I, I understand this problem deeply. So, yeah, I, so how totally do you identify. how do you deal with that? Well, okay. So the first thing that happens is this: any tuning on the guitar has to be looked at vertically, meaning just look at the intervals that it it gives you, makes available to you across string pairs. Uh, as if like you're just looking at the open strings, right? Right. So even if you look at standard tuning, standard tuning is a set of perfect fourths and then there's one major third. Right. Right? And then if you skip strings, you get two minor sevenths, two major sixths. And then if you skip two strings, you get a, a minor ten and two major nines. So inside of an octave, you have a third, a fourth, a six and a flat seven. This is like a desert. You know, this is like nothing. Right. Right? So watch this. I was a kid, just started now, I was playing about four or five months. I read this article by Lowell George in Guitar Player Magazine, when Guitar Player Magazine was 25 pages long. And he talked about this tuning called universal tuning, and it's where the high E is a D. Some guys used to call this half-open G, but I've never heard it referred to since that article. That was like in 69 or 70. Right. Uh, I read this article. And so I dropped a high E, the top string down to a D. And when you do that, it creates a minor third on the top. Between the third and the first string is a perfect fifth. And between the fourth and the first string is an octave. So now you have flat three, three, four, five, six, flat seven octaves. <laughs> That's vertically. The slide could play those. And then above that, you have a ninth and a minor 10. And between the various pairs of strings, all I did was I just worked out, I, I studied up on my harmony and my scales and modes and arpeggios, but my harmony, I studied it up so that I knew how every chord was built and I could do it from any root. And then I just looked at the intervals between the different voices and all I need to represent that chord are two notes. And I could pick any two voices I want. I could pick two tensions. I could pick the third and the flat nine. I could pick the flat seven and the sharp nine. I could pick five and six and so you're now playing intervallically and you're playing really small interval sets and so representing a chord is not ringing one voicing one big four or five note voicing it's playing a whole string of smaller ideas smaller groups of notes and now you're playing more melodically and harmonically and now you know of course 
what we're talking about is a lot of data and then organizing it so it sounds musical. You know, this is a long time. This takes a while. Yeah, yeah. Are you, but this is, are, but this is so when you listen to you, piano players in jazz, when you listen to their right hand, that's what they're doing. Invariably. Absolutely. They're doing that in the right hand. And in the left hand, they're usually holding a voicing or a larger structure down. So the, the lower of the sounds you hear will be a larger structure, like a guitarist would think of a chord. But you look at a Herbie, and he's playing, you know, with Miles in the 50s, and he's playing these little beautiful two- and three-note groups against the G minor chord. Or something. So I just eliminated the G minor chord and played the little groups. And then I was golden. Well, that, and if I worked that out that across sense. different types of chord changes, I was, I was, I could handle it. That totally makes sense because, like, if you ever take, uh, you know, all, there's a whole plethora of jazz video courses, but a lot of the times they they they're they're not looking at four and five note chords; they're looking at you know, uh, you know, two and three note chords. So if you correct, just, oh, okay, that's right, right, and that's because. For the obvious reason uh, that isn't obvious to us as guitar players till we've played for a long time, which is that the guitar is not, because you're only playing it with one hand in terms of note selection on the fretboard, generally, um, you're really limited as to what combinations of intervals you can select because there's a physical problem. Whereas on piano, you can go from clusters of any size to large voicings of virtually any size. And you can arrange those in virtually any combination across four registers. And so you have, you know, you've got 30 inversions of a chord, whereas we have four, you know. And so we're always recycling a particular, uh, you know, chord form. And we call it different things, and we acknowledge that it can be used as different things, you know. B flat uh, major six chord is also a first inversion G minor seven. And, you know, it's an E flat major nine and blah, blah, blah. And when you break it down into two and three note groups, now the guitar really comes into use as the way the instrument's designed. And now you start to approach the, the range of color that a piano can give to music that's harmonically rich, you know? Yeah, that makes so, sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you know? Because, you know, one of the things I had started to do in the last couple of years, and it just didn't, it, for obvious reasons, didn't translate to slide, although I can make it work, is, you know, I, I started playing in dadgad because I had a finger injury in, and yeah. on my left hand. And so it allowed me, because I was already pretty fairly adept at finger style, that I could cover a lot of ground. But, you know, of course, having that A and D on the top instead of a B or D on the top Correct. string. It's, it's funky because you really got to think about it. Um, and the and rest... Plus you're back to fourths again. You're just back to, exactly. you're back to an interval desert. And it was just not helping, you know. So, right. so, so having like, you know, E, A, D, G, B, D. Yeah, this is going to open it up completely. Dude. Take okay. a minute. But it's going to open up completely. Yeah. Now, okay, so let me ask you this. So so uh, just a, another technical thing. So, sure. Uh, uh, so are you, uh, how, how high do you have your action set? Um, uh, do you, know, you, could, you could fire an arrow off of my guitar easily. It's so high, it's ridiculous. When I hand it to people, they literally, they say to me, 
how do you play this? Because I play a lot of stuff with fingers, too, whenever I want to. I mean, I can turn right around and just, you know, do an enormous amount, like a really enormous amount of stuff, like all the chord comping, all of the line playing and soloing. And the action's ridiculous. It's like... Um, I don't know, it's like five thirty seconds of an inch at the 12th fret off the fretboard. It's <laughs> quite high. <laughs> and I do finger-behind-the-slide stuff using, for the most part, just my index finger, and the slide is on the pinky. And that allows me to create a lot of voicings that you can't get vertically. And um, I also do real small group things. I do all my intervals that way. Um note uh, string pairs i can take them from seconds you know all the way up to 14th from any pitch and that coupled with my understanding of harmony and inversions allows me to literally play on site any chord progression using that technique and make it sound like you know like a like what you're kind of expecting to hear more or less you know Right. The thing that's interesting to me is the idea of how ambiguous harmony actually is. Meaning that when you really get down to it, there's only rhythm and melody. And harmony is this really ambiguous area because if you define it really solidly as having to be a certain way, you know, a standard or a, a folklore tune is written with certain chords, you know, that's one thing. You're saying, I need this C major here on this beat for this long, and it's going to go to an F major here, you know, or whatever. So then you're making it more solid. But in general, say in jazz, there's this idea of reharmonization that can start to include what's called harmonic ambiguity. You know, like you can reduce all the chord changes to a couple of constant structures and you can sort of obliterate all the movement. And this was starting to happen in the bebop era, like all over the place. And so you don't have, the chord progression kind of goes out the window at that point. And if you look at the history of jazz, that's exactly what they did. By the time they got to the 60s, Ornette Coleman was playing bebop tunes. All those tunes, they're not out tunes. You know, the shape of jazz to come, it sounds like a bebop record, but there's no chord sounds in the background. Right. And when you look at Charlie Hayden's bass playing, he's not playing bebop changes. He's just playing a, another melodic type of line with a bass function. You know what I mean? So they were already moving clearly in the direction that everyone wanted it to go, which was like, hey, harmony is actually, you know, when you play a three-note chord, you're playing a three, you're playing three notes of a of three melodies, one voice each. When that three-note chord goes to another three-note chord, you're you're handling three melodies at once. You're playing counterpoint right you may as well go back to bach <laughs> you, know what I mean? you want to shed your shit go back to bach and mozart because <laughs> that's really you know that in western music that's the archetype for you know you want multi-voice counterpoint training there you go so that's what i did i just started to discard a worry over the jazz thing and started listening to it as well as working with classical music from the standpoint of of counterpoint. And then, of course, God, you listen to any of the fingerstyle music from the United States in any, could be Reverend Garen Davis, it could be, could be anybody, or any classical music or flamenco, it's all counterpoint. And after a while, I just said, 
harmony is like a hologram. It's what's it's what <laughs> is temporarily created by counterpoint, and it evaporates like that, you know. Right. And uh, a lot of people are hung up in jazz nowadays about playing the changes, but every and I help students with transcriptions. This is something I never used to do. I never used to transcribe. I just used my own ear for ideas, my mind for ideas. But um, I've been helping a lot of students with their desire to transcribe. Um, every solo I look at that's from a supposed jazz master of old, even up to including people like, you know, Brubeck and Bill Evans or Miles or whoever, um, you see all these like, you know, chords represented with notes that are not really part of the chord. In other words, what they're actually playing versus the chord symbol, it's not at all correct. Right. But it's what they did. And it's, so then, in other words, the, the, the standard practice is what they played, not what was on the page. You know? Exactly. Brubeck's favorite thing to do when he would play over a minor seventh chord would be to play a minor seventh, a half step up from that chord and a whole step up from that chord and play them both together. But he'd break them up so you couldn't hear it. Hmm. And Train did that too, you know? So I was looking at that and going like, dude, that is without a doubt the most dense sound you could possibly put against that chord if you were choosing something other than the chord to play. And I'm talking, they're manipulating this melodically now. Right. Like as a line. Right. But it's a line, even when they're comping, they're harmonizing a little bit, with maybe one other note. When I saw that, I thought, these guys are just responding melodically. And I let myself go. And now I do all these arrangements where I just, I find the harmonies, I think, go well with something I'm playing. And that's what I play. And um, I've noticed that with almost without fail, everybody responds to it just fine. You know, like they respond to it like, feel like it's, you know, like it's music. They go like, man, that's nice. That sounded great. Yeah, because it's you know, if we, super if we transcribed it, it, Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's because I don't think, I don't think it's that, uh, you know, you know, if you're looking at an Oscar Peterson solo, that particular guy playing that particular instrument, he's coming at it from a certain angle. It's not the Bible. It's just an angle. Right. You know, if you wanted to discard it and say, oh, I'm going to take this one thing, you know, hey, that was a nice idea. I want to do my version of that. And you threw the rest of his work out, of, out the window for yourself. Nothing would happen, man. Nothing bad would happen. Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Absolutely. And that's what I love about it. That's what I love about improvised music. So, so are you using a glass slide or a metal slide? No. I'm a metal, metal on metal guy. But uh, of course, the other thing that I do is uh, many, many years ago, one of the features of my playing, which um, I, I don't hardly ever see anybody do, uh, weirdly enough. I started, I, I've always worked with horn players, right? All my life there's been horn players uh, in my circle. And my favorite guys are the brass players. And I love the trumpet players and the mutes that they have that change the timbre of their horn, you know? And I thought, what would be the version of that with what I do? So I started to experiment with using different types of things as slides. 
So I have slides that are varying types of plastic. I have slides that are varying types and thicknesses of metal. Um, I have wooden slides. I have different objects that I use as slides. Uh, a couple of secret weapons in there. I'm not going to divulge at this moment, but um, uh, basically nobody's kitchen drawer or garage is safe from me. Um, a hardware store is like a, it's like a cathedral to me. I go in it and I find things and I experiment. And so I have a series of objects that allow me with the facility as a slide player that I have, so it doesn't change my facility at all in, in terms of anything I want to actually execute, but I have these things that can sound like oud, kodo, various African instruments, Chinese instruments, uh, instruments that they sound sort of re reminiscent of something, but you can't quite place it. Um, and then it led me a little further into the whole prepared guitar thing, which then I combined with that. So I checked out, you know, when years ago I was on the road doing solo tours and I would um, have these occasions where I'd play double bills with Fred Frith and or Rebo, you know, who's one of my buddies. And, um, and uh, watching them do the prepared guitar thing, I watched Frith do this 90 minute concert of just prepared guitar and I, I basically stole everything he did. <laughs> and of course, when I, when I tried it, it didn't turn out the way it did with him. And I said, good, that's good. There you go. So I'm going to take the sound idea and then I'm going to figure out what I can use it for. So there's this whole other range of, you know, kind of slide as prepared guitar thing into the prepared guitar thing, um, which I find opens up a great world of, uh, of sounds, you know, that, um, you know, lend themselves to creating environments or textural things or ambient backdrops or whatever, rhythmic things. I can imitate African drumming and all kinds of stuff using this. Are um, you, are you using pretty heavy strings too? Yes. Yeah. I have, uh, been blessed with, um, I've had string endorsements over the years, LaBella, D'Addario. I currently am back with D'Addario, and they give me these um, uh, uh, electric jazz light. It's a 13 on top and a 52 on the bottom. It's a 24 wound third string. So they're 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 thick and tight, and uh, they never break. Um, but I destroy them. I destroy them. If I play a concert, I destroy a set of nights. So, like, they're, they're basically, they're, after three hours, they're gone. So when I was on the road, I used to have to change them at least every day. So I need, like, hundreds of sets of strings a year. And uh, I'm, I'm like their crash test dummy. You know, they can't believe it. I send them the, I'm sending them the metal shavings off my fret, my refrets, and they can't believe them. <laughs> They laugh. They, they pin them up on a bulletin board. They get this is Tronzo's fret refret. There's like a bag of metal shavings. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. Yeah, let me tell you something, by the way. So so I made the mistake of playing slide guitar against uh, a, a hockey trophy once. <laughs> and it's not good for your frets. Nope. Sorry, babe. <laughs> because but 
It probably sounded pretty cool. <laughs> oh, dude, it sounded awesome because it was like this big goblet trophy. I'll have to send you a... Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And, and my drummer videotaped me doing it, um, and it sounded awesome, but oh my God, like I brought it to, you know, uh, to Joe Glazer down here, and, and he was like, what uh-huh. did you do to this thing? And I'm like, well, <laughs> let me show you the video. <laughs> Well, next time you finish a can of, like, you know, smokehouse almonds or a small can of coffee, clean it out and keep the lid off the top and play a few lines of that. And you'll hear a very beautiful and interesting sound that might pique your interest, you know, and then go from there. Oh, I'm definitely. Just experiment. I'm definitely going to try that. Um, um, Yeah. Yeah. It's really amazing. I have one more question for you before I let you go. And it's the same okay. question I ask everybody. And it's the only one I repeat to everybody. And not everybody wants to answer it. So it's fine. Um, is when you were first starting to play slide guitar, how, mm-hmm. how many hours a day did you put in before you felt competent enough to go out and play with other people and for other people? Well, that's a really great question, actually. And my answer is going to maybe be, I don't, I'm going to say surprising, but I thought it was rather common at the time. Um, I would play, I would play every spare hour that I had. So I guess when I was in high school, six hours a day was pretty common. Um, Because that's kind of my free time, you know, given that you had to deal with school. Um, But I started to play. I joined a band seven or eight months after I started to play. So after I started to teach myself, and I laugh when I tell the story to my students, I say, I had five good notes and three good chords. (laughs) And I was really shy. I didn't really like to perform. Um, but I wanted to play music with people. So what I did was I kind of, as soon as I got enough to even fool myself into thinking that I had enough to get a toehold, I put myself against all odds in situations. You know, I went out, I did more sitting in then than I ever did after I was 20, for example. And I joined this band with these army guys that were twice my age. I wasn't even legal yet. It wasn't legal by years. <clears throat> and um, so I learned the value of playing really badly on stage <laughs> hmm. until you could play better. And what I mean by that is you get on stage and you, you, you basically have nowhere to go but forward through the music and you got to make it happen. And so of course what happens is you, your effort is, is 150%. And whatever didn't work, which is a lot of stuff, as long as they didn't fire you, which in this case they didn't, I ran home and I, and I worked on that stuff. I got developed this habit that after I would come home from a gig, I would practice for four hours, two to four hours. So at four in the morning, I'd practice till late in the morning. Wow. <clears throat> because everything was fresh. And then later that day in the evening, I would practice again. And um, that habit 
is still my habit today. Um, and, you know, in spite of the fact that there's an enormous, uh, enormous change in how much doesn't work is very minimal now. I'm always looking to improve and, and refine. So I didn't let myself, I didn't get hung up with being a student of the guitar. Somebody said something to me when I was young, which really, when I was first starting out, this guy that was kind of my local hero guy, who actually was the first guy to take me around to places. His name was Dave Angelico, and he was a super killing guitar player, like an unbelievable guitar player. And Dave said, he said, look, man, you're always going to be a student of guitar, but make no mistake, there's two kinds of people in the world of guitar. There's people who are learning how to play, and there's people who play. Make sure you're the latter. <laughs> and, you know, I went out, man, I had my three good, five good notes and my three good chords, and I played them like it was the end of time. Right. And I was terrified you know i was not an ego driven guy i was not a guy who had confidence or courage well i must have courage but i didn't have confidence but when i played i played like i had to blow the wall down and i think people i think people accepted it because they saw how much commitment i had they said you know wow that kid when he figures this out that's going to be pretty good. <laughs> right. And right. this is, yeah, this is the thing I encourage of everyone who's playing, no matter where they are, I say, man, don't worry about that stuff. What you call a mistake, don't worry about it. Play with people, get out there, kind of get over it. Don't get hung up. This isn't about precision and perfection. It's not. Yeah. It's about something way different. It's not just the notes and the, and the skills and stuff, there's an energy, there's a kind of a charismatic function, you know what I mean? Right, right. The, the human aura, you know, the, the that extra thing that comes through you, you know, the creative whatever, it's kind of none of our business, but there it is. And um, if I don't go out and play, then I know what I'm going to get. Right. I know already what I'm going to get. I'm not going to get anything. So just go out. And let them throw you off the bandstand if they have to, but that's never happened. That's never, ever happened. Even when I played stuff that later somebody recorded it, say, and I, I find it, I found it embarrassingly unlistenable. You know, there were people there that said that was great. So go figure. Huh. Wow. Yeah. See, I think it never comes down to that stuff. I don't think it ever comes down to what you think happened or what you think is good or what you think it's about. And I don't think it has to do with anybody else thinking that either. Uh, I think it has to do with just doing it. It's yeah. sort of like, um, what do they say? You know, love is a verb. It's not a noun. Right. You know, <laughs> you know if you're not doing it, then there's nothing to talk about. You know what I mean? So, I, and I really believe that. I mean, that's the, that's kind of the, my, if you wanted to distill a philosophy to a sentence, it would be, don't worry and play. Right, right. That's great advice, man. I really, I, I think we're going to have to do a part two at some point. <laughs> Maybe. Please, let's do that. So that was the wonderful David Tronzo on episode four of the slide area. In the upcoming weeks and months, we'll have people like 
Doug Cox, Danny Flowers, Robert Armstrong, Calvin Cook, Guy Sunstall, Sonny Landreth, Jack Pearson, VM Bot, Johnny Highland, and more and more and more. So please tune in again next episode, and thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. I'm your host, Ed Pedersen. Please send me your thoughts and uh, questions and uh, comments. I'm more than happy to uh, get feedback from you on these ongoing podcasts and any way we can make them better. So until episode five, hang in there, keep practicing, and take care.